This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Welcome to the new year. Welcome to 2022. I wanted to start the new year by providing some of my own thoughts on the two key national security issues facing the Biden administration, Russia and Ukraine, and the Iranian nuclear program. We'll be right back with that episode after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us for another year of Intelligence Matters. We're so grateful that you take the time each week to listen. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you're going to get me today rather than me interviewing a guest. You're going to get my thoughts on the two most pressing global hotspots in the world as the new year begins, Russia, Ukraine, and Iran's nuclear program. I should just add that we taped this on December 30th, so there may be some new developments that occur between our taping and our release of this episode because these are fast-moving issues. Let's start with Russia and Ukraine. Right up front, I suggest you hit the pause button. Take a few seconds to pull up a map of Ukraine and have it ready for this discussion. I think you'll find it helpful. By the way, and this is a bit of a digression, the reference to the map reminds me that CIA produces the best maps and the best graphics to display analytic information of any organization I've ever seen, inside or outside of government. The cartographers and the graphic designers at the agency 
are simply the best. They don't get a lot of attention outside the agency, but they should. And I just wanted to give them a little bit here. President Biden and Russian leader Vladimir Putin exchanged warnings during their nearly one hour phone call as tensions grow over the situation with Ukraine. So let's start with what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. As most know, the Russians have amassed some 100,000 troops along the northern, the eastern and the southern borders of Ukraine. The largest concentration of those forces lie to the east and to the south of Ukraine. Look at your map. The Russians are coming as close as they can to surrounding eastern Ukraine, where a significant share of the population are Russians. In fact, the share of the population in Ukraine that are Russians and who speak Russian grows as one moves to the east in Ukraine, but it never gets over 50%. Ukrainians remain in the majority in every province. Only in Crimea is it over 50%, and Putin incorporated that territory into Russia in early 2014. The 100,000 troops have more than 1,300 tanks, 1,800 pieces of heavy artillery, and missiles capable of carrying a 1,000 to a 1,500-pound warhead some 250 to 300 miles into Ukraine. These missiles are capable of carrying fragmentation bombs, submunitions, penetration bombs, fuel air explosives. These are sophisticated weapons. Russian officials reiterated they want guarantees that NATO won't expand to the east into Ukraine and up to the Russian border. As he has amassed these troops, Putin has demanded that the United States and Western Europe agree to a red line that Ukraine will never be given membership in NATO. In fact, Putin has demanded the immediate start of negotiations to codify strict limits to NATO's expansion, particularly with regard to Ukraine. Putin sees the expansion of NATO to his borders, which already exists with Poland and with the Baltics, as a significant national security threat. He really does see this as a threat. These aren't just talking points. And most important, Putin is signaling that he may well invade Ukraine if he does not get what he wants. In his mind, he would help guarantee his security by taking a significant part of Ukraine, the part that protrudes like a dagger into Russia. Look at your map again. So why is Putin doing this? By threatening an invasion, he is putting pressure on Ukraine and the West to act more in his interests, to come to his side of the fence on the NATO expansion issue, while giving him an ability to invade if he so chooses. He also garners some other gains as well. The military deployment plays to a domestic audience in Russia that wants its leaders to be tough. And it creates an impression, which is important to Putin, that Russia is a major player on the world stage. So why is he doing this now? I think he's doing this now because he's being driven by several factors. By the continued drift to the west of Ukraine since 2014, 
by Moldova making clear that it wants to join Ukraine in looking to the West for its future, and quite possibly by Putin sensing weakness in U.S. policy in the aftermath of our decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, as well as by the chaotic nature of that withdrawal itself. What's been the Western reaction? For their part, Western officials have said that Putin's demand to impose limits on NATO expansion is a non-starter. The NATO position is that individual countries have the right to choose their own security arrangements. NATO stands with Ukraine. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg put it best a couple weeks ago. Ukraine has the right to choose its own uh, security arrangements. This is a fundamental principle of European security. And the decision on whether Ukraine can join NATO will be taken by Ukraine and 30 NATO allies alone. Western officials have also said directly that Russian aggression against Ukraine will be met with, quote, serious consequences, unquote, according to Secretary Blinken. I've made it absolutely clear to President Putin, it's the last thing I'll say, that if he moves on Ukraine, the economic consequences for his economy are going to be devastating. Devastating. Indeed, the United States, the European Union, and NATO have all said that any new Russian incursion into Ukraine would be met with harsh, intensified, and extraordinary economic sanctions, including possibly killing the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, which bypasses Ukraine, a project important to Russia. The United States has also suggested that NATO would beef up its troop presence near Russia's borders should Russia invade. Having said all that, the U.S. has also just agreed to talks with Russia about security arrangements in Eastern Europe. Those talks are set to begin on January 10th. This is very important, and we will come back to it. Is there some context here that can help us think about this and where it might be headed? Yes, there is. But let me start with another digression here. Analysts talk about context all the time. The former director, one of the former directors of CIA, George Tenet, used to say that context is everything. What is context to an intelligence analyst? It's just information that helps one understand a developing situation better, that gives one perspective on what is happening today. It could be as simple as this development is just the latest in a long trend, or it could be this development is the first time we've seen this. For example, a North Korean soldier firing a weapon across the DMZ into South Korea sounds really scary, but not if the context is that this sort of thing happens routinely. You get the point. Back to our story. So I think there are three pieces of important context here. The first is that Russia is acting fully consistent with how it sees its national security interests. One of Russia's key foreign policy goals is controlling or having significant influence in those parts of the former Soviet Union that are no longer part of Russia. Not only does this geography line up with the borders of the former Soviet Union, it also lines up fairly closely 
to the borders of the former Russian Empire. Russia sees this control, this influence, as a key way to protect Russia. And of course, to Russia, NATO membership for any of those countries is a direct challenge to this long-standing foreign policy goal. And Ukraine is the most important of those countries to Moscow. Why? Because Russia sees Ukraine as part of Russia. Ukrainians and Russians are both ethnically Slavs. Ukraine was part of the original Russian state. Indeed, the first capital of the Russian state was Kiev. Most important, Putin fears that what happens in Ukraine could spill over into Russia. This is why he reacted as harshly as he did to the revolt in Ukraine eight years ago. We're on the air because news is breaking in Ukraine, and President Obama is about to make a statement in the White House briefing room. He, of course, did not want to lose Ukraine to the West, but even more important, he did not want his own population to mimic their brethren in, in Ukraine and come out under the streets of Moscow and say, we don't like the direction our country's going. We want a greater say in how we're governed. And by the way, we want you to go away. That's the nightmare scenario for Putin. That is existential for him. What's the point of this piece of context? The issue of the future of Ukraine is extraordinarily important to Putin. The second piece of context here is that Russia has already invaded Ukraine, and it's already at war there. As I mentioned earlier, Russia took Crimea in 2014 the first land grab in Europe since the Second World War. And it has been supporting Ukrainian separatists in eastern Ukraine for seven years. Russian money, Russian weapons, and Russian special forces. The fighting has been bloody. It has cost 13,000 lives. And the separatists hold Ukrainian territory. What's this context mean? Putin has invaded Ukraine before. It should be no surprise if he does so again. I think Putin is one of these uh, leaders who will push forward as long as there's no significant resistance. But he's not suicidal, he's not delusional, he's not crazy. Putin is trying to reassert Russia as a great power player in the world. The third and the final piece of context here is Putin the man. Who is he? And what does that mean for what we can expect of him? Bob Gates a former director of CIA and a former secretary of defense put it best when he said, when you look in Putin's eyes, you see KGB, KGB, and KGB. I think Putin is a thug and a bully. He only believes in relative power. How much does he have and how much do you have? He does not believe that a negotiation can end in win-win. He only believes in win-lose. He is not the brilliant chess master that he likes to portray. He does not think multiple steps ahead. He takes a step, see how that plays, and then he decides on the next step. And unlike most people who are risk-averse, Putin is risk-prone. He is willing to take risks, and he is willing to take even more risk in the aftermath of having taken a risk and having had it pay off. He is particularly dangerous from that perspective. So what does all this mean for where we might be headed in the days, weeks, and months ahead? How to think about the future. 
as I just said, I don't believe Putin has a thought out plan of what he is going to do. I think what he decides to do next will depend on a number of factors, a large number of factors. What are they? I see four big ones. The first is what the United States and Europe do over the next few weeks. Do we stand tough or not? Do we send the message that an invasion will really be extraordinarily costly to Putin in terms of sanctions or not? Do we make him think that the sanctions we are considering will have significant economic costs and could well lead to his nightmare scenario, his own people in the streets protesting against him or not? Hello. Good to see you again. Here also is where the willingness, the U.S. willingness to talk comes in. Can we walk a fine line here between allowing Putin the public perception that he has gained something diplomatically without sacrificing our fundamental stand that each country gets to pick its own future? The second factor is the political dynamic in Kiev how Ukrainian politics is reacting to the threat of invasion. Are Putin's actions here reinforcing the Ukrainian drift west, or at least some Ukrainian politicians coming more to Putin's side of the fence? The third factor is the amount of military opposition that Putin thinks a Russian invasion force would face. While being tough is popular in Russia, dead bodies coming home in large number would not be. And Putin knows that. While the Javelin missiles that the U.S. has provided Ukraine in recent years could not stop a Russian invasion, they would inflict significant damage on Russian forces. And the fourth factor is the degree to which Putin thinks that his occupation of eastern Ukraine after a successful invasion would face an insurgency that would send, over an extended period of time, even more dead bodies home to Russia. There is a precedent for this. Ukrainians have done it before. The 25th anniversary of the foundation of the Red Army. The Ukrainian insurgent army, the UPA, formed in 1942 to fight for the country's independence, fought viciously against the Red Army when it marched into Ukraine in 1943. The UPA carried out thousands of attacks and inflicted thousands of casualties on Soviet forces. The UPA continued fighting until the 1950s, forcing Moscow to mobilize tens of thousands of troops and secret police to restore control. The Ukrainians could well do something like this again in an invasion scenario. Putting all these factors together, I think there are three scenarios for the future. Scenario one, Putin stands down calculating that he has chalked up at least some political and diplomatic wins, perhaps thinking that he has affected the psychology of both NATO and Ukraine with regard to the future of NATO membership, and most important, calculating that the costs of an invasion are too high. In this case, he would probably keep his forces near the border for some time and only slowly remove them to save face. And back to the talks again between the U.S. and Russia. Again, they can play a role in helping us get to this scenario, but, but, but we cannot get to this scenario by giving him what he wants. We cannot get to this scenario by walking away from Ukraine. We cannot give him Ukraine in those talks. That would be appeasement. 
Scenario two, Putin significantly increases his support to the separatist insurgency, most likely with the separatists grabbing even more territory in eastern Ukraine. In this scenario, Putin would keep his troops on the border to intimidate the Ukrainian government from fully responding militarily to the increased insurgency. This scenario would afford Putin the ability to demonstrate that he is serious about the NATO issue while publicly denying Russia's involvement. This scenario becomes more likely the less he thinks he has won from what he has already done and the more he thinks that a full invasion would be too costly. In scenario three, Putin invades and takes significant territory in eastern Ukraine. In this case, he would have two choices. Take just those provinces with a high percentage of Russians among the total population, or take the entirety of eastern Ukraine up to the Dnieper River, essentially taking half the country right up to Kiev. Look at your map again. This becomes more likely the less he thinks he has already won, and the more confident he is that he will not face a steep cost from an invasion. There are so many factors here and so much that is still in flux that it's difficult to put probabilities on each of the three scenarios. I think at this point that if you are a government or a private entity with an interest in Ukraine, you need to plan for all three, which of course means planning for scenario two and scenario three. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Two final thoughts on Russia and Ukraine. Two big picture points. The first is that the outcome here is not just about Ukraine and its future. It's also about American credibility. If we back away at all from the self-determination position we have taken, we would lose credibility. If Russia invades Ukraine and incorporates Ukrainian territory into Russia, we would lose credibility. Make no mistake, this standoff is, as Richard Fontaine, the president of the think tank, the Center for New American Security recently said, and I want to quote, if the United States says don't do this, you will regret it. It will be very serious costs and the Russians do it anyway, it does raise questions about America's ability to, cho- to achieve outcomes, end quote. Darn right. The second big picture point is Putin's gain could well be Russia's loss. What does that mean? Think about it this way. What's the answer to the question, who was the big loser in the first Ukraine crisis in 2014? Yes, it was the Ukrainian people who had their aspirations crushed. Yes, it was the West for looking impotent in the face of Russian aggression. But most of all, it was Russia itself. 
Russia's only future is to be tied economically to Europe. And Putin continues to sabotage that. And there was no bigger act of sabotage than what he did in Ukraine in 2014. He may make a similar and perhaps an even bigger mistake this time around. Putin is not acting in the long-term interest of the Russian economy or the Russian state. If he continues to only focus on the short term, he is not going to go down in history as a great Russian leader. He is going to go down in history as just the opposite. Let's switch to Iran. And let's start with some background. CBS News special report. This is the good deal that we have sought. The deal Secretary of State Kerry was able to announce a short time ago keeps Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons power. The international community, in the form of the United States, the other permanent members of the UN Security Council, that's the UK, France, Russia, and China, and along with Germany, made a deal in 2015 with Iran that remove all nuclear-related economic sanctions on Iran in return for Iran, among other things, agreeing to cap uranium enrichment at 3.67%, the amount used in power reactors, restricting enrichment to only one facility, a place called Natanz, no enrichment at a place called Fordo, which we'll come back to later, the use for the purpose of enrichment of only Iran's first-generation centrifuges, not its more advanced centrifuges, a limit of 300 kilograms for Iran's stockpile of enriched uranium. And remember, that would be only uranium enriched to 3.67%. Significant changes to and limits to activities at an experimental heavy water research reactor called Iraq that was designed to reduce the risk of plutonium production at that reactor, and a broad international monitoring and verification regime. The vast majority of these restrictions on Iran's nuclear activities were time-limited. That is, they would sunset at different points in time, anywhere from 8 to 25 years, with most in the 10 to 15-year time period. Since the deal was struck in 2015, that means most under the agreement would have been removed by 2025 to 2030. President Trump withdrew from this deal in November 2018, announcing the withdrawal in May of that year. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. He reimposed on Iran in November the U.S. nuclear-related sanctions that had been removed in 2015. The U.N. and the EU sanctions were not reimposed. The Trump administration argued that the sunset provisions were a fatal flaw to the agreement, and also that the agreement failed to account for Iran's missile program and for its malign activities in the Middle East, including its support for international terrorist organizations. In withdrawing, the United States did not cite any evidence of Iranian noncompliance on the specifics of the nuclear deal, but it did say that Iran's regional activities were inconsistent with a clause in the preamble of the nuclear deal that said the signatories to the deal would commit themselves to act in a constructive atmosphere based on mutual respect and to refrain from any action inconsistent with the letter spirit and intent of the agreement. We do not want conflict. We resist, but we're not seeking confrontation. 
the Iranians condemned the U.S. move, but they initially took no action in response. They were hoping to divide the U.S. from the rest of the international community, hoping to make the U.S. look like the bad guys and the Iranians look like the good guys. This lasted until May 2019, when the U.S. ended waivers it had granted under the reimposed U.S. sanctions to sell oil. These waivers allowed a handful of countries to buy Iranian oil. Iran responded to the ending of these waivers almost immediately with two sets of actions. First, it significantly increased its malign activities in the region, both to demonstrate that it too could impose costs and hoping that the threat of instability would push the international community to pressure the United States to reverse itself in whole or in part. These malign activities included attacking, both directly and indirectly, through proxies, third-country tankers in the Persian Gulf, Saudi oil facilities with drones and missiles, and increasing attacks on U.S. facilities and personnel in Iraq. The U.S. Defense Department says the military, at the direction of the president, conducted, quote, a defensive action at the Baghdad International Airport in Iraq, killing a key Iranian general. The U.S. responded by killing Qasem Soleimani, the architect of much of Iran's malign regional activities, which brought the U.S. and Iran closer to all-out war than at any time since the tanker wars of the 1980s. And second, the Iranians started to take steps on the nuclear front that took them out of compliance with the nuclear deal. These steps have become more aggressive over time. They've included six significant steps. One, increasing its stockpile of enriched uranium. As of November, Iran remained under the 300 kilogram limit, but at that point they were on track to breach it in short order. They may have done so already. Two, enriching uranium to higher levels. Iran started violating the nuclear deal's protocols by enriching to 5%, just above the 6.7% limit. Then they went to 20%, and then to 60%. A nuclear weapon requires enrichment to just over 90%. Somewhat counterintuitively, it is much easier to go from 20% to 90% than it is to go from zero to 20%. The Iranians are getting very close to enriching uranium to weapons grade. Three, using advanced centrifuges, which are capable of enriching uranium at a much faster rate than Iran's first generation centrifuges. Four, enriching uranium at locations that were prohibited namely the underground facility at Fordow. We have to take a digression on Fordow here. Fordow was designed to be a covert enrichment facility. It is much too small to produce uranium fuel for a power reactor, and it's just the right size to produce enriched uranium for a weapons program. The Iranians only declared it to the IAEA after Western intelligence agencies discovered the facility and publicly outed it in 2009. And Fordow is so deep underground that it would require special munitions to destroy it from the air, and only the United States has those weapons. Number five, producing uranium metal with 20% enriched uranium. 
uranium metal produced from 90% enriched uranium is what is at the very heart of a nuclear weapon. It is the core. And six, sporadically inhibiting the international inspectors from monitoring and verifying what the Iranians are doing. So why are the Iranians so radically breaching the nuclear protocols? Multiple reasons, I think. Improving their negotiating position by creating facts on the ground that can provide more gains if they negotiate them away. Perhaps the Iranians think that they can even get rid of non-nuclear sanctions uh, from terrorism, human rights, and their missile program if they gave away some of these gains. Improving their technical know-how that no agreement can ever take away from them. And perhaps to get to the threshold of being able to produce a nuclear weapon. That is, to get to their nuclear weapons objective. It can be one of these, or it can be all of them. Let me take another digression here on the concept of threshold. Analysts have long debated whether Iran's goal is to actually have a nuclear weapon or to simply get to the threshold of having one. That is, having all the pieces and being able to put them together fairly quickly. The declassified 2007 National Intelligence Estimate on Iran's nuclear program said the goal was threshold. So we'll use that as Iran's objective in this discussion. Another factor behind Iran's more aggressive behavior on the nuclear front is the shift in political power in Tehran from what some call the reformers, still quite conservative from a Western perspective, to the hardliners. The hardliners who opposed the nuclear deal were able, with Trump's withdrawal, to say to the reformers, we told you so. We told you you could not trust the Americans. We told you you could not trust the head of the snake. The political shift was clear in the February 2020 election of Iran's legislature called the Modulus, in which the reformers lost in a landslide. That was followed by the Iranian presidential election this past July, also won by a conservative. Now, hardliners hold unprecedented power in Iran's government. If the whole system is in the same line, then they might function better. So that there will be less infighting because the hardliners are in charge across the board now. That's true. There will be less friction. Just like we did with Russia-Ukraine, let's take a look at some context. The first piece of context. Why does Iran want to be on the threshold of a nuclear weapon? A combination of three reasons, I think. Nationalism. Persian nationalism is strong in Iran. Iran sees itself as a major regional power. It looks around the world and sees other major regional powers having a weapon, and they think, why not us? France is a country that the Iranians often compare themselves to, and France, of course, has nuclear weapons. Deterrence. Iran fears the United States. Iran believes that the United States wants regime change in Iran, and they see nuclear weapons as the ultimate deterrent against U.S. military action against Iran. In 2003, with the U.S. military on its eastern border in Afghanistan and on its western border in Iraq, Iran thought it was next. It never wants to feel that way again. And they think nuclear weapons would provide that. Regional hegemony. Iran wants to be the hegemonic power in the Middle East. It is something it had at one time in its history. 
nuclear weapons would support such a policy objective, particularly given that its arch enemy in the region, Israel, has nuclear weapons too. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Second piece of context. How close is Iran to being on the threshold? There are three key pieces of a nuclear program nuclear weapons program, fissile material. This is necessary to make that core of uranium metal that will generate a nuclear yield when detonated. On this, it sounds to me as if Iran is only weeks away, and they are certainly closer than they were when we began nuclear negotiations in 2013. A workable bomb design. This is the ability to put enough pressure on the fissile material to detonate it and to create a nuclear yield. We know the Iranians were working on this up to 2003 when they stopped. I don't know if they have worked on it since or how far they got before they stopped in 2003. And a delivery system. You have to be able to deliver a nuclear weapon to its target, usually either by missile or by aircraft. Aircraft delivery is risky as it takes time and as the plane could be shot down. If you deliver by missile, the nuclear device has to be small enough to be mated to the missile, and the bomb design has to be robust enough to withstand the pressures, the vibration, the temperature changes of flight and reentry into the atmosphere. The Iranians have worked on an ICBM, and they have a vast inventory of medium-range ballistic missiles. I don't know where the Iranians stand in successfully mating a nuclear design to a missile. What's the bottom line here? Iran is clearly close on fissile material, but I don't know on the other two. At minimum, they are a few months away from threshold, and at maximum, probably a couple of years. Yesterday, together with Prime Minister Johnson and Merkel and Macron, uh, President Macron, we came together to, uh, to reiterate our shared belief that diplomacy, diplomacy is the best way to prevent Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon. So where do the negotiations stand? The negotiations that began in April to come up with a new new agreement are not going well. There have been seven rounds of talks, but they have not made progress. The eighth round of talks just began. Throughout, the U.S. and the Iranians are not even talking directly to each other. We're talking to each other through third parties. The conventional wisdom was that the Biden administration would be able to come to agreement with the Iranian government. It was what the Biden team said it wanted to do during the 2020 campaign. 
that has not worked. One reason, and we'll talk about others in a minute, is that the talks did not start until April. This turned out to be too late. While the talks initially made some progress under the government of former Iranian President Rouhani, they did not conclude before the Iranian presidential campaign kicked off. The hardliners won the the election and Iran's position hardened since. Many experts are now questioning whether there will be a return to an agreement. All of this has the attention of the Israelis, who see the Iranians having nuclear weapons as a significant threat and who see the progress the Iranians are making toward a weapon as significantly worrisome. There are those in Israel who are arguing for their country to take military action. This would not be an easy military operation for the Israelis. There are many facilities that would need to be hit. They are deep inside Iran. And and Iran has one of the most sophisticated air defense systems in the world, purchased from Russia. In particular, Israel does not have the special munitions they would need to destroy Fordow from the air. Or even if they did have them, they don't have the ability to deliver them. One would need a B-52 or a B-2. But that does not make it impossible. There are other ways to destroy Fardau, namely with a commando raid where Israel would know going in that most of the commandos would never come home. Israel has no stronger and more reliable ally than the United States of America. Uh, From our inception and uh, to this day, especially these days, you're always with us, you have our back. If Israel believes it is time to act militarily, what the Israelis would like is for the United States to go to war with them. And that is arguably an option. And the Biden administration has not ruled it out in its public rhetoric about Iran. So what are the scenarios here going forward? Three, I think. The first is an agreement. To be sure, there are many factors arguing against that. Let me list them. Politics in the United States. Biden is weak. He is entering an election year. And he never thought the original deal was worth the political cost. He will not want to give the Republicans a nuclear deal with which to attack him in the midterms. Politics in Iran. As I noted earlier, the hardliners are now in charge. Most important from a political specter in Iran are the views of Iran's two most important leaders the Supreme Leader. He was a tough sell on the first agreement. He's 82 years old. Does he want his legacy to be a deal with the Americans? Does he want his legacy to be another deal where the Americans pull the rug from underneath him in three years? I think not. Raisi, a protege of the Supreme Leader, is allied with the Revolutionary Guard, which is already designated a terrorist organization by Washington. Then there's the new Iranian president, Ibrahim Rahisi. He wants to be the next supreme leader. He has every incentive not to make a deal with the Americans. He does not want to undermine his credibility with the group of hardline clerics who will choose the next supreme leader. And there's no significant political constituency in Iran for a deal. The effect of the U.S. sanctions have diminished over time as leakage has increased, and particularly as the Chinese have purchased more Iranian oil in violation of our sanctions. In addition, the costs of the sanctions have not fallen on the Iranian elite. They have fallen on the poor. But those Iranians are not blaming their own government for their economic problems. They are blaming the United States. 
Also, the Iranians never believed that they benefited economically from the first agreement. So many are asking, what's the point of another deal? In this regard, the Iranians have historically been a country that prefers not to be economically dependent on other countries. And the events of the last 10 to 15 years have only reinforced that. So from the point of view of the hardliners, sanctions are a forcing function for getting Iran to where it should be anyway, as self-reliant as possible. From this perspective, the sanctions are a good thing. All of this to say is that both countries want, for political and for national security reasons, a better deal than they got the first time around. So the decision space for a deal has shrunk, and it simply may not exist. So a deal has a low probability, say 10%, but it's not zero because diplomats routinely overcome long odds. The most important leverage here for Washington is a perception of U.S. military action. I don't believe a deal is possible without Iran believing there is a real possibility that the U.S. might go to war without a deal. The next scenario is war. The argument in favor of war is an end to the nuclear threat for the short term. The arguments against war are many, big downsides in the short and in the long term. Economic consequences of war, namely in the form of sky-high oil prices. Longer term, a new generation of hardliners in Iran, a strong incentive for a covert nuclear weapons program in Iran, and a strong incentive to go beyond threshold to a weapon itself. Even in Israel, one sees these arguments. Roughly a month ago, a group of former senior Israeli national security officials published an open letter arguing against an Israeli strike for many of the reasons I just outlined. So no guarantee that Israel will act. Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to strike nearly a decade ago, but he could not get the votes he needed in Israel's security cabinet. But because there are also strong voices in Israel arguing for military action, we can't count out Israel going in alone either. What about the U.S.? I don't think President Biden wants another war in the Middle East. And politically, I think it would open him up to to a significant primary challenge from the left if he decides to run again. I also think this is the Iranian assessment of the U.S. at the moment. Remember I said earlier that the Iranians need to think we will strike to change their calculus on a deal. So overall, what's the probability of war? I'd say it's small too, but not zero, say another 10%. That leaves us with the third and the most likely scenario acquiescence of Iran getting to the threshold of a nuclear weapon. There are big downsides here as well. The Saudis will pursue a nuclear weapon or purchase them from the Pakistanis. The Emiratis could pursue a nuclear weapons program as well. The existence of a nuclear of, of nuclear weapons by so many states makes any confrontation poten- potentially a nuclear confrontation. Just look at the wars that India and Pakistan have fought over the past decades and the risk of nuclear confrontation. This would also represent another blow to U.S. credibility, another failure to present to prevent something that we that we pursued aggressively. 
I'd put this, this scenario at 80% probability. There are many reasons why being president of the United States is the toughest job in the world. Managing national security decisions is probably the biggest. And Russia and Ukraine and the Iran nuclear pro- program are two of the toughest that I've ever seen. It's going to be an interesting and a critically important year. Thanks for joining us. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free, starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.